Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the Olympic Games have officially begun. How to reconcile excitement for the sports and the spectacle with the reality of the situation. Plus, controversy is brewing over the remains of Captain Cook's ship, the HMS Endeavor. And choose your fighter, 3D printed vegan meatballs, or Build-A-Bear's sultry after dark line of stuffed animals for adults. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The Olympic opening ceremonies were this morning in Beijing, and the spectacle, which will be replayed on local networks during prime time tonight, was themed around unity and new beginnings. But, quoting the Washington Post, China's motto of coming together for a shared future during the hardships of pandemic, an echo of President Xi Jinping's political philosophy of building a community with a shared future for mankind, has been countered by U.S.-led diplomatic boycotts that seek to hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for human rights abuses, military aggression, and ascendant nationalism during Xi's rule. End quote. So, yeah, the Olympics are complicated this year. Over at Slate today, Justin Peters described this year's Olympics as back and worse than ever and a complete horror show. Peters dug into why it is that we continue to watch and report on the Olympics given the game's long history of behavior that is, quote, imminently boycottable. Peters points to the gentrification and displacement of hundreds of people for the 2012 London Games, documented human rights abuses, prohibition on protests, and recent passage of anti-gay laws at the 2014 Sochi Games, the severe recession and outbreak of Zika virus highlighting the laundry list of health and safety concerns at Rio in 2016, and of course the decision to go forward with the Games this past year in Tokyo when only a small portion of the nation's population had been vaccinated. And then there's this year, quoting Peters, Even by the low standards of the recent past, the 2022 Beijing Games stand out as being particularly awful, given both China's rotten human rights record and its growing indifference and hostility to criticism of the same. By now, it's pretty well acknowledged that China continues to pursue genocidal policies against the predominantly Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang, subjecting them to surveillance, internment, sexual abuse, and torture. Last fall, the country effectively disappeared tennis player Peng Shuai after she leveled sexual assault allegations against a high-ranking Chinese official. She reappeared in December to retract her claims. Chinese President Xi Jinping is an autocrat who has presided over an ongoing anti-democratic crackdown in Hong Kong, has escalated tensions with Taiwan in the name of peaceful reunification, and has proceeded toward the goal of zero COVID via a slew of iron fist authoritarian measures, as per the New York Times, even as the nation has resisted the World Health Organization's relatively recent efforts to seriously investigate the pandemic's origins. End quote. And Sam Borden at ESPN echoed Peter's sentiments, saying, quote, it's hard, this Olympics. It's hard. The truth is that with this Olympics, maybe more than any Olympics we've ever had, nothing feels clear. Nothing feels easy. Nothing feels certain, end quote. Adding to the argument that the Olympics aren't so great, Borden reminds us that the Winter Games are only happening in Beijing because no one else except Kazakhstan wanted the job. Oslo had been a top contender, but backed out when they saw the International Olympic Committee's alleged demands, which read like an entitled pop star's rider. 
Though the IOC said Oslo Media was making some of it up, the demands allegedly include a cocktail party with the Norwegian royal family, paid for by the Norwegian government, extended hotel bar hours, seasonal fruit and cakes in IOC members' hotel rooms, only Coca-Cola products on offer, mandatory smiling from hotel employees, and an encouragement to cancel local schools and send residents away on vacation during the games. Understandably, Oslo said, yeah, no thanks. And though Kazakhstan tried their best with their bid, pointing out that they have an actual ski mountain as opposed to Beijing's average six days of snowfall a year, it's not hard to understand how a group of people with such luxurious demands would prefer to travel to a country offering way more money and five-star hotels for their stay. Beijing had also shown the Olympic Committee the kind of organized, show-stopping, profitable games they could pull off back in the summer of 2008, a games managed, by the way, by Xi Jinping several years before he ascended the ranks to become president and general secretary. Plus, as honorary IOC committee member Gianfranco Casper told a Swiss newspaper after Beijing won the votes for the 2022 bid, quote, Dictators can organize events such as this without asking the people's permission. For us, everything is easier in dictatorships. End quote. Wow. Keeping it real, Casper. Despite his attempts to walk back that comment, he wasn't exactly wrong. Borden points out how China, Russia, and Qatar have found happy partnerships with organizations like the IOC and FIFA because they don't have to care as much about public consensus and backlash against expenditures or, you know, civil and human rights abuses. And experts say the desire of these nations to host big global events is less about trying to fit in with more progressive nations, but rather, as Olympic historian David Wallachinsky told Borden, quote, This is about the Chinese government being able to say to their citizens, look what we've done, look what we've brought you, look what China has accomplished. It's propaganda to them. It's Olympic propaganda. End quote. Or as Rana Miller and Elsbeth Johnson wrote in the Harvard Business Review, quote, The truth is that China is not an authoritarian state seeking to become more liberal, but an authoritarian state seeking to become more successful, politically as well as economically. End quote. One of the places that any host nation's political sentiment is most obviously put on display is in the opening ceremonies, and China's performance back in 2008 changed the idea of what an Olympic opening ceremony could even be. Miles Osgood argued in Slate that the 15,000-performer-strong opening ceremony that, at the time, broke records for the biggest live audience in human history had double meanings. There was what international audiences saw— Epic presentations of China's technical and cultural contributions to the world in exquisite, if intimidating, precision and awe-inspiring scale, and what national audiences saw, symbolic nods to Maoism and Hu Jintao's harmonious society doctrine. The director, Zhang Yimou, who also directed today's opening ceremonies, had started his career making films critical of the People's Republic, but shifted to more nationalistic films and won the praise of the government. According to Osgood, in Zhang's 2008 opening ceremony, he seemed to reprise both of these roles, as rebel and as conformist, and people saw what they wanted to. Some saw thoughtful critique, and others, patriotism. 
Now, I haven't watched this year's opening ceremonies yet, but reviews so far seem to think that Zhang went the patriotic bent again, focusing on the future rather than the past, and underscoring the political vision of China that has been a subtext of Olympic promotion already. Quoting the Washington Post, Alongside skiing pandas and dancing children, local media is filled with Xi's less cuddly propaganda themes, cultural self-confidence, technological self-reliance, and white-knuckled determination to win China's many territorial disputes, end quote. The Olympic Games, and the opening ceremonies in particular, can tell us a lot about a nation's intentions. But arguably, there's not a ton that we can do about it. Quoting Osgood, We already know in many ways how the Games of Beijing 2022 will play out. The arrival of the Olympic torch will not reform China any more than it reformed Germany in the 1930s or Mexico in the 1960s. The diplomatic boycotts led by the U.S. will not free the victims of genocide any more than Steven Spielberg's artistic boycott did 14 years ago. These are symbolic gestures. What is left for us to interpret are the symbolic gestures that the host offers in return during the hundred minutes of Zhang's sequel ceremony. Be wary of singular readings and be on the watch for second meanings, end quote. Be wary, but should we even be watching? The U.S. has already led the diplomatic boycott, and more for COVID reasons than political ones, NBC has set up most of their reporters in Connecticut rather than flying them to Beijing. But do we as individuals not watch, not engage? Is there a way to perhaps celebrate athletes who've trained their entire lives for this moment but not support the politics of it all? Justin Peters over at Slate points out that, of course, reporters will still cover it because it's global news, both as a sports event that the entire world takes part in, but also as an international relations story, and that it's natural to care about the Olympics. Peters said, quote, Those sports lack the direct sociopolitical import of wars and elections. They are an ongoing part of human history and have mattered to people for millennia. Massive gatherings and spectacles such as the Olympics serve a ritual social function. They bring people together to feel uplift and relatedness as a result of participating in the spectacle. This sense of collective effervescence improves people's lives in ways that might not be directly quantifiable but are real all the same. End quote. I empathize a lot with Peters, who defines himself as an Olympic reporter who specializes in, quote, very, very dumb stories, like who the best Todd at the Olympics is, and what if skaters skated to the tune of George Costanza's answering machine message, end quote. Likewise, I would rather talk about on this podcast the cool science of various sports or Olympic structures and historical moments or interesting situations that trend online, and I probably will, but I have to talk about the more serious stuff too, I think, mostly because it's important and we can't divorce any of the fun sports stuff from it, really, but also... I like to think that big, complex, nuanced topics that raise more questions than answers is kind of what this show is about when it's at its best. All of you daily listeners know I don't always hit that, far from it, and I think it's okay to balance big ideas with figure skating to George Costanza's answering machine message type of content. But at the end of the day, this is a podcast made by and for curious people, and curiosity is not always lighthearted. The pursuit of curiosity is not exempt from ethical examination. 
So while I may not feel like the best steward of this information, I didn't feel like I could just sweep it under the rug, especially as I personally choose to follow the Olympics this year and know that I will inevitably want to share some of that on this show, especially if Justin Peters takes another crack at the best Todd in the Olympics. I mean, I just have to know. The remains of Captain James Cook's HMS Endeavor have apparently been found off the coast of Rhode Island. Or have they? It depends who you ask. The Australian National Maritime Museum announced yesterday that the wreckage in question was the Endeavor. Only for their partners of 22 years, the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project, or RIMAP, to disagree, saying more evidence is needed and that the Australian Maritime Museum is in breach of contract for making the announcement. So first, some background on the HMS Endeavor, quoting The Guardian. From 1768 to 1771, the Endeavour sailed the South Pacific, primarily to record the transit of Venus in Tahiti in 1769. Cook then sailed it around the South Pacific, searching for the Great Southern Land, charting the coast of New Zealand and Australia's eastern coastline before claiming the land for Great Britain on August 22, 1770. The Endeavour was later sold to private owners, renamed Lord Sandwich, and deliberately sunk in 1778 by British forces during the American War of Independence. A year later, Cook was killed in Hawaii during his third Pacific voyage, ten years before the first fleet arrived in New South Wales to establish a British colony. End quote. That transit of Venus is part of what makes the HMS Endeavour such an object of interest. Quoting Ars Technica, The observation was part of a combined global effort to determine the distance of the Earth from the Sun. Those observations proved less conclusive than had been hoped, but during the rest of the voyage, Cook was able to map the coastland of New Zealand before sailing west to the southeastern coast of Australia, the first record of Europeans on the continent's eastern coastline. End quote. Something, of course, not everyone would applaud him for. But for nearly three decades now, divers and archaeologists have been looking for the remains of the Endeavour and the other ships that were scuttled in the 1770s by the British. With the assistance of 18th century maps and logbooks, as well as continually advancing technology, by 2016, volunteers at RIMAP were able to locate 10 of 13 wreckages, and by 2018, narrowed those down to one that was likely the Endeavour. But one issue with properly identifying it is that only 15% of it remains. Research has since been conducted on items like ceramic teapots and lead pieces from pumps found in the ship's remains, as well as comparing what is left of the ship to its original plans, which they fortunately have. Kevin Sumption, director of the Australian National Maritime Museum, says they took great care to confirm the last pieces of the puzzle before making their announcement and are convinced that the ship in question is indeed the Endeavour. RIMAP, however, said in a statement that there is, quote, "...no indisputable data found to prove the site is that iconic vessel, and there are many unanswered questions that could overturn such an identification. When the study is done, RIMAP will post the legitimate report on its website. RIMAP recognizes the connection between Australian citizens of British descent and the endeavor, but RIMAP's conclusions will be driven by proper scientific process and not Australian emotions or politics." End quote. So it seems Captain Cook continues to stir the waters even two and a half centuries after his death. 
Well, really hammering home the idea that this show can balance big ideas with irreverent nonsense, here are a couple of bizarre headlines to round out your week. So, IKEA has had vegan versions of their famous meatballs for a while now, but more recently, it's been experimenting with 3D printing those vegan meatballs and apparently serving them up to candidates during job interviews. According to Business Insider, IKEA has not released any plans to start serving 3D printed vegan meatballs in their stores just yet, but it may be coming soon to help them hit their goal of 50% plant-based foods in their stores by 2025. And for now, they're hoping it will help them recruit tech workers with the right temperament and meatball passion for the job. But 3D-printed vegan meatballs have nothing on the latest antics from Build-A-Bear. The custom teddy bear company posted an ad on social media for a line of stuffed animals for adults called Build-A-Bear After Dark. The main photo is of a stuffed lion in a red silk robe reclining on a fur rug in front of a fireplace with two glasses of champagne and a single rose. Now, the actual line of stuffed animals for adults on their website aren't nearly as sultry as this one, so the whole after dark thing seems to just be a Valentine's Day promotion. And the stuffed animals for adults isn't quite as creepy as it may sound, but it is still way more uh, accurately millennial than I realized Build-A-Bear was. They've got a whole bunch of t-shirts for the stuffed animals with stereotypical lines like, I can't even, and rosé over roses. There's even one stuffed rabbit holding a succulent and wearing a t-shirt that says, plant love, and a puppy in pajamas with a can of seltzer. The It's Wine O'Clock Somewhere t-shirt set comes with a stuffed bottle of Cabernet and a generously poured glass. I mean, no one can accuse Build-A-Bear of not knowing their audience, I guess, you know? These are absolutely the things that a parent taking their kid to Build-A-Bear would seriously or ironically pick up for themselves while they're there. Still, I'm not gonna get the company-sanctioned photo shoot of that stuffed lion trying to be sexy out of my head for a while. So that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend everyone.